This is The Guardian. Hey, Jane Lee here. Over the weekend, Russia's armed mercenaries, known as the Wagner Group, staged a surprise mutiny against their own side, taking over a Russian town and marching on Moscow. It was over almost as soon as it began. But the uprising has raised many questions about the stability of the Russian state and the future of the war in Ukraine. In this episode of our global news podcast, Today in Focus, host Noshin Iqbal speaks with The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, Andrew Roth, about what is driving these events and what they mean for the future. Here's Noshin Iqbal. It was a twist that shocked even Russia experts. We start with some pretty serious breaking news here. A paramilitary leader sets his sights on the Kremlin. Over the last 24 hours, we've seen the greatest threat to Russia's Vladimir Putin's power since he took over in 1999. The world watched Vladimir Putin's mercenary army turn its forces from Ukraine over to Moscow. It's been 16 months since Russia brutally invaded Ukraine. But for one weekend, it looked like Putin's regime could topple. Moscow faced a jaw-dropping threat by soldiers from its own side. Tonight, security around Moscow is being tightened. The Russian media reports that riot police are protecting important facilities around that city. The world was gripped, but almost as soon as it began, the rebellion ended and a deal was hastily brokered. A nervous stalemate is holding in Russia tonight after a coup attempt on the Kremlin was stopped 200 kilometres from Moscow. The rebel leader behind the insurrection agreed to exile in Belarus. On Monday night, Putin gave a speech saying that the bloody uprising was a criminal enterprise and doomed to fail. Armed mutiny would have been suppressed in any case. Organisers of the mutiny, even though they became deranged, they could not but understand this. They understood everything, including the fact that they were committing a crime aimed at dividing our society. But the chaos of the last few days has shown the cracks in Putin's power. I was absolutely taken by surprise. I mean, what happened this weekend is that for 24 hours, we were on the brink of a proper civil war inside of Russia. It's something that I never could have imagined happening, uh, that even with all the events of the last year in the war that's going on, the idea of a mercenary army, including convicts, marching on the Russian capital, it's indescribable. It's unbelievable. And I think that everybody is still kind of coming to terms with what exactly happened this weekend. The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, Andrew Roth, has been piecing the story together. What on earth just happened? And what does it all mean? Having come to the end of this weekend and and this threat of civil war having receded, I think that for a lot of people, the question is just, how stable is the Russian government at this point? And if the same kind of thing happens again, if this war goes on and we see more anger in Russian society or amongst Russian troops. Is the Kremlin going to be ready if we see another mutiny or even a possible coup in the future too? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, what does Wagner's armed rebellion mean for Russia's war with Ukraine and for President Putin? 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Andrew Roth, you're The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, and you've been trying to make sense of what has been one of the most chaotic, stunning weekends of the Russia-Ukraine war so far. Can we start at the beginning? What happened on Friday night? The first thing that happens is that a missile hits a camp that is used by Wagner mercenaries who are in East Ukraine, and their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, immediately blames it on the Russian military. He goes on screen and he says, because of this, I'm now going to be moving against the Russian military. They disregard the lives of soldiers. They have forgotten the word justice and we will bring justice back. Therefore, those who destroyed our men today, those who destroyed tens and tens of thousands of lives of Russian soldiers will be punished. And he basically issues a declaration of war against the Russian Ministry of Defense. So Evgeny Prigozhin, chief of the Wagner Group, which is an army of Russian mercenaries who've been essential to Moscow's war effort, turn on the Kremlin. Can you explain a bit more about why? This goes back to the feud that's been taking place between Prigozhin and the Russian military for months now. Prigozhin's troops, who include real mercenaries, trained mercenaries, but also people who have been taken out of prisons and recruited, have complained that they haven't been given shells, they haven't been given ammunition. And reportedly, they've started to even kidnap ordinary soldiers in order to blackmail the army to give them more. So this tension is growing, and we're coming to a point when the Russian military has said, everybody who's a mercenary in Ukraine now has to sign on with us. They're going to take Prigozhin's army away from him. And that's why we come to this crunch point right at the end of June, when all of a sudden this conflict goes from these kind of small clashes into open warfare. Andrew, at this point, how seriously was everyone taking Prigozhin? Because his capacity for ferocious violence can't be denied. And we will come on to talk about the Wagner Group's reputation. But how quickly was he able to rally his troops? And what did they do? So we've seen Prigozhin talk a lot before, and I think that a lot of people just thought that this was more talk. But that day, Prigozhin started criticizing the war. He'd said that this war in Ukraine was a mistake. And as a result, the Russian FSB, the security services, put out a warrant for his arrest, basically saying that he needs to be brought in on charges. And it was at that moment, on Friday to Saturday overnight, when Prigozhin's troops start moving in from Ukraine back into Russia and they move on the Russian city of Rostov. Military vehicles can be seen tonight cruising through Rostov. The Wagner Group's leader posting a series of videos accusing Russia's defense minister of ordering a rocket strike on his field camps in Ukraine. And by early morning, around 7.30, Prigozhin's troops have actually, with few shots fired, taken control of a major Russian city, Rostov, and of the military headquarters at the center of it. And what kind of numbers are we talking? We think that it's in the thousands, 
But from video, we see what doesn't seem to be an incredibly large contingent of Wagner soldiers who have managed to establish control over central checkpoints in the city. It seems like the Russian military didn't even know exactly what to do in this situation. And so how does Putin respond at this point? And what do we begin to hear is happening in Moscow? This is when we first get to the point where people realize this is a proper mutiny and possibly a coup. And that's when Putin goes on television and gives an extraordinary statement to the Russian public. Everyone who consciously chose the path of treason and planned the armed uprising has embraced blackmail and terrorist methods. They will be inevitably punished before the law and our people. This is something he's done very rarely during this war. And he basically says that he's not going to allow a civil war to take place in the country. He calls this internal treason. And he accuses Prigozhin, who was an ally for a long time, of issuing a stab in the back. So he lays down the gauntlet and he says that he's going to deal with this mutiny, this uprising, very brutally. We had reached a crisis point. Not only was Rostov taken, but Wagner troops were streaming towards Moscow. We had some videos showing them driving up the M4 highway, and they were just about 200 kilometers away from the city. This was an unprecedented moment. And then on Saturday evening, after ramping things up to 11 and on the brink of breaking the world as we know it, a peace negotiation is brokered by the Belarusian president and Wagner's attempted rebellion is stopped. Andrew, what do we know about what happened? You know, I was sitting here and really expecting that by nightfall we could see clashes on the outskirts of Moscow. And at this crisis moment, when it seemed like there was no way back for Prigozhin, all of a sudden there's a surprise announcement that the Belarusian president has come in almost out of nowhere and brokered some sort of a peace agreement between Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. The leader of the Wagner Group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has ordered his mercenaries to turn around and return to their bases to avoid bloodshed, he said. What we know from what's been made public about that is that Prigozhin is told that his soldiers will receive an amnesty, they won't be prosecuted, and that Prigozhin is supposed to go into exile in Belarus. Andrew, from everything you say, the peace deal does sound so surprising. Do you have questions about what was going on behind the scenes? I absolutely do. And to me, the peace negotiation or the deal that's been struck doesn't make much sense and doesn't seem like something that can really hold. Prigozhin is a person who's been a maverick his entire life. He's a person who takes massive risks. And it's very hard for me to imagine him going into exile and just living into old age. It's hard for me to imagine Putin doing this as well. Everything that we know about Putin tells us that it's a person who divides his enemies into those who are against him and into traitors. And he's shown time and again from the scripple poisonings, from other attacks on former defectors, that he does not forgive treason. And the idea that in this case, he would suddenly forgive a person who he accused of a stab in the back does not work with everything that we know about the Russian president. So we have major questions about that, how the negotiations took place. But at heart, it feels like a very uneasy truce.
Andrew, we've made episodes on the Wagner Group before, but can you remind listeners of who they are and why they're so important to Putin's war campaign? Wagner is a paramilitary force that has been doing Putin's dirty work for the last decade. It was founded by Evgeny Prigozhin. He's an ally, a former businessman, government contractor. Wagner came out of the 2014 war in Ukraine uh, when the Kremlin needed troops that weren't directly affiliated with the government. But since then, it's grown into a much larger organization. Their main work was abroad in Africa for a very long time. They're a projection of force that lets the Kremlin lend out this mercenary force that can protect dictators, control various resources in Africa, provide protection in that sense. And it can be a very useful tool that can give the Kremlin leverage in countries where Western countries might be a little bit more skittish about directly interfacing and helping the government stay in power. And what about Evgeny Prigozhin himself? Can you tell me a bit more about how he has got to where he is and why he commands so much fear and power? This is a guy who, during the Soviet Union, was arrested uh, as a criminal, basically, for robbery and spent 10 years in prison. But coming out of the fall of the Soviet Union, managed to first create a very successful restaurant in St. Petersburg and restaurant business. And actually, the way that he made a lot of his money was by supplying catering, basically, for the Russian army and for schools. And these are big contracts that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. This is the reason why he became called Putin's chef. And so over time, Prigozhin had amassed a lot of power, a lot of money. And he also showed that he was willing to take on these dirty jobs that other people weren't. You know, troll farms uh, attacking the U.S. elections in 2016, and also the creation of Wagner, which, uh, as we can see, was important in 2014, but has changed the war quite considerably now. He's obviously a significant enemy to make, but Vladimir Putin himself is also a very frightening enemy to make. And presumably, he will want to take revenge on anyone who challenges his authority. And Prigozhin's defiance, as you said, has been flagrant. He's openly criticised Russia's reasons for its invasion on Ukraine and marched into Russia anyway. What do you think he was gambling on happening? I think that we need to think that Yevgeny Prigozhin's decision this weekend was an act of desperation. Because of the tensions, because of the fear that he was about to lose his power base, he decided he needed to take an extraordinary act in order to reshape the discussion around what was going to happen to him and to Wagner, which had achieved its main goal in Ukraine, which was taking the city of Bakhmut. And so at this moment, Prigozhin, looking at the situation and seeing that the Ministry of Defense has him in a corner, decides that he's going to go all in and that he's going to either hope that other people in the elites are going to come to his aid, because he does have connections high up in the government. And there's also an idea that when Prigozhin went public, he was also really appealing to Vladimir Putin himself, right? He's saying that the fat cats, the brass in Moscow, they're enriching themselves, they're taking advantage of you. I can't take the situation anymore, it's unacceptable. You could say that maybe he was telling Putin, come march with me, against the elite. It sounds crazy. It sounds counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. But Putin has always presented himself as a kind of anti-elitist. So maybe Prigozhin thought that he could possibly go over their heads and appeal directly to Putin himself. And what about the Wagner group itself? I mean, these tens of thousands of hired thugs, some of them are brutal ex-cons who will commit atrocities for money. Where does all of this now leave them? The truth is we don't know. According to the law, these mercenaries are supposed to 
sign up with the Russian Ministry of Defense and become part of the Russian army by July 1st. And it seems like with Prigozhin now on the outs, apparently in exile, that that is exactly what's going to happen. Now, we've spoken with people who used to be involved with Wagner, and it seems like that's an unlikely eventuality for a lot of the people who fight in Wagner. They have a lot of personal fealty to Prigozhin himself. The thing is that without him, they are a very disorganized force, and they're extremely vulnerable. These were useful shock troops during the Russian offensive, but they can't really in the long term hold out against the Russian military, we think. So it's most likely that a lot of them will be taken in or will just decide to stop fighting altogether. But then what does that mean for Russia's ambition? How will absorbing Wagner troops into the army and not having them as this separate, plausibly deniable force, how will that allow Russia to do the dirty work, as you call it? I think what's happened is that the Russian military has become more like Wagner. Over time, they've adapted the tactics that Wagner innovated for this conflict, and they've also changed to understand that there is a place for very expendable troops and also highly trained mercenaries within their own ranks. We've seen the Russian military start to actually recruit convicts from prisons, cutting off Prigozhin's access, but starting to use the exact same tactics. And the reason they do that is because nobody cares about these troops. They can throw them at a city like Bakhmut. They can put them on the front lines as cannon fodder. And there won't be any political blowback. Even though Wagner might be phased out very soon, it's fair to say the Russian military has become a little bit more like Wagner. the so-called coup against Moscow seems to have failed before it even really began and Putin is ostensibly back in control again. But it doesn't look great for him, does it? I mean, what does this weekend say about Putin's strength and about his authority? It raises huge questions about Putin's control of the army, Putin's control of various other people who are under him. And I think it also raises questions about how involved and aware and engaged he is sometimes in the conflict that's going on. You know, at moments there were rumors that Putin had left Moscow. We haven't confirmed any of those, but there was a sense that he was absent to a certain degree after basically the most dramatic 48 hours that I've seen in 12 years of covering Russia and that I think most Russians have seen in the last three decades, you know, since the, the early years of the 90s and the fall of the Soviet Union. The fact that he made a clear statement that I'm on this side, he was the arbiter, he supported the defense ministry, and Prigozhin went forward. And now Prigozhin's been maybe let off, maybe allowed to go into exile without being punished, I think raised major questions about just how on top of everything he is and if he can continue to keep control of these warring factions underneath him. How has Putin historically kept control of his rivals, his allies, his enemies? And is it fair to say that it's no longer working? Historically, Putin has always tried to set the people up underneath him to fight against each other and to basically compete for his approval. What's happened now is that the tensions unleashed by the war have made it more and more difficult to actually keep control over those conflicts. It's become extremely difficult to keep a tap on all of these ambitions, all these different visions for the future. And people see a lot of opportunity on the back of a war that 
is also transforming the vision of what Russia is for the future. And some people said that Prigozhin's vision is a kind of total war state, something more along the lines of a North Korea, something more closed. And one of the main criticisms is usually that the Russian government isn't taking the war seriously enough. This is a half measure. We need to go all the way in and we need to properly mobilize totally for this war. And that's the main kind of conflict at the moment is how do you keep those people on side and not alienate them without actually going full North Korea. Does Prokoshin have ambitions to oust Putin, to become leader of Russia? And would it be one of those moments where you look at it and think, well, now we miss Putin? Many people are not calling what happened this weekend uh, a coup. They're calling it a mutiny. Uh, and one of the key reasons is basically because there was never a point where Prigozhin stated that he really wanted to get rid of Putin. His anger was directed uh, very concretely at Sergei Shoigu, the defense ministry. Shoigu! Gerasimov! Where are other people who might be in government, but not at Putin himself, because Putin has always been his benefactor to a certain degree. Maybe he recognized that would be a step too far, although it seemed like he'd pretty much thrown caution to the wind when he sent a convoy of troops towards Moscow. But there is a sense that he might not have wanted to actually take the Kremlin itself, and he wouldn't have wanted to depose Putin, and that might be why he stopped outside of the city. One of the scariest things is getting what you want. And when he got so close to Moscow that he could taste it, and you could actually see the kind of conflict that was about to take place, he ultimately blinked because he didn't even really know what he was doing in the first place. Coming up, what does the Wagner Group's uprising mean for people in Russia and in Ukraine? Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Andrew, on Monday, Putin gave this speech where he said that the organisers of the rebellion had betrayed their country. Earlier, Prigozhin had posted an 11-minute video in which he insisted he wasn't trying to topple the Russian regime. Soldiers have died on both sides of this brief and bloody conflict. And so I wonder, where does all of this leave the Russian people? How will this weekend have split loyalties and public opinion? I think it leaves people incredibly confused. Certainly when the convoy was on its way toward Moscow, we heard from people who were very nervous about what was going on. My colleague Pyotr Sauer spoke to people from Rublovka, which is a very rich area of Moscow. Some of them were telling their guards to be on high alert because this convoy was mainly coming in on a kind of anti-elitist campaign. And they were worried that if they did come to Moscow, the first place they would go would be to these big mansions on Rublovka. So... We know that there was a lot of concern about possible civil conflict and even civil war. One of the key goals of the Russian government for the whole war has been to project stability. You can keep living the way you lived. We're just going to have this war at the same time. And this kind of shakes that idea. It makes it difficult to live like that anymore. In Rostov, the other thing we saw was that there was some support for Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, he's not a really popular public figure. But this message of they're lying to you, this message of uh, it, it's their fault, the kind of people in Moscow who are making your life bad, that they're mismanaging the war, that the troops at the front are suffering because of them, that we're doing the fighting and that they don't really lose anything, that really does resonate. And I think it goes beyond Yevgeny Prigozhin. That, I think, has to worry the Kremlin because the fact that they could walk into Rostov and the military didn't seem to stop them and people didn't seem to be very opposed to this is kind of a wake-up call. But given how quickly this happened and then didn't happen, is there a sense that this will be treated as a blip, as almost a memory that that actually didn't occur as a mind trick on the Russian people to kind of forget and, and stay with Putin and stay with this invasion? Yeah, this weekend feels a lot like a fever dream. You know, you went into Friday convinced that this could be the end of the Russian regime, especially on Saturday morning. And then all of a sudden, you know, you kind of snap out of it on Saturday evening when there's this surprise statement that all of a sudden a deal has been reached, the troops are going back, and Yevgeny Prigozhin is going to kind of fade away into exile in Belarus. And I see a desire from a lot of people as well to kind of forget the whole thing ever happened, to pretend that everything is okay, and to see it as exactly a kind of blip in this early part of the war. I think, for Russia, because this will be a long war for the country, where they're figuring out how to control the forces that they've unleashed by fighting this war. Uh, They created Yevgeny Prigozhin, and they created his mercenary army. They were armed by the Russian military, and a lot of their salaries were paid through that as well. These were people who couldn't exist without state support, and now they've had to roll them up and get rid of them. And this is seen, I think, as, as part of maybe the cost of doing that business. And continuing on with the war and and continuing on as though nothing ever happened. You mentioned this is potentially still an early stage of the war and that it will be a long one. What does Wagner's volatility and the events of the last few days mean for Ukraine? And will Ukraine be able to exploit this chaos? I think that Ukrainians were very excited to see the chaos that was taking place in Russia. Uh, This is something that I think a lot of people have been hoping for, that there would be a real backlash about the war, the way it's been fought, etc. Obviously, people would hope that the opposition would be to the war itself in the first place. And strangely enough, Prigozhin, who's been fighting that war, 
said a lot of the things that I think uh, people would agree with, that, you know, this is a baseless war and it doesn't make sense. And in that sense, it's a huge moral boost for the Ukrainian side. I think that it shows the chaos in the Russian ranks. The Russian military has been humiliated, and I think that a lot of people enjoyed Prigozhin uh, pushing around a couple of senior officers at the Southern Military District. And it could be a moment when they say, okay, now we can really push our offensive. You know, the Russian troops could be demoralized by this. That said, Wagner had already been pulled off the front lines in Bakhmut. The city was more or less taken. And to be honest, they really no longer had a reason to exist. You know, they could be deployed in the future to help counterattack against the Ukrainians or for the next Russian offensive. But they'd mostly been pulled off the front lines. And that means that their absence and all the kind of craziness of the last couple of days probably won't affect the day-to-day fighting that we see in Ukraine. And Andrew, what about the response from the international community? Did anyone credibly see this coming? The U.S., after this happened, said that they had already seen it coming, that U.S. intelligence knew ahead of time that Prigozhin was planning something. You look skeptical. I find it confusing just that if the U.S. intelligence community saw this coming, and it's very possible they did, how the Russians wouldn't also see that something was being prepared along the same lines. It's possible that they did and that this was reported to Putin and that he decided that it wasn't true or ignored it or thought Prigozhin would never do something like this. But I still have major questions about why the Russian military seems so unprepared for this eventuality. And if it was obvious to foreign intelligence, it feels like the Russians should have known as well. Well, Andrew, finally, irrespective of how successful or not successful, rather, this weekend was for Prigozhin, it is incredibly destabilising for Vladimir Putin. And I wonder, does this mark the beginning of the end? That was a big sigh. (laughs) I feel like we've been... It's always difficult to predict when's the beginning of the end for Putin. There's so many moments that we've blown by over the last year or two years that have eroded the power around him, and yet he has managed to hang on and seems to be in as much control as he had before the war until this weekend. You know, this was the first time when it really seemed like the Russian government, the Russian military, and Putin himself might really have not known what to do because they had met this completely indefinable quality in Prigozhin, a guy that was acting in desperation and nearly launched a civil war inside of Russia. But there will definitely be a reckoning amongst top officials. And there will be questions about who was effective at stopping the biggest armed mutiny we've seen in Russia in recent history. And so the coming weeks are definitely going to be spent trying to figure out who is going to be punished besides Yevgeny Prigozhin. Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Noshin Iqbal speaking with The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, Andrew Roth. You can read Andrew's extensive coverage of the latest events in Russia on theguardian.com. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Natalie Hatena. Sound designed by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer is Huma Halili. Additional production by Daniel Simo. I'm Jane Lee, and we'll be back with a new episode of Full Story for you tomorrow. Catch you then. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.